five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. My guest today is Alex McDonald, Senior Economic Advisor in the Office of the Administrator at NASA Headquarters in Washington. I'll note that Alex is appearing in a personal capacity and not representing NASA in this interview. Alex is recognized as an expert on the economic history of American space exploration and contemporary private sector space activities. He was previously the founding program executive of NASA's Emerging Space Office and is the author and editor of a number of NASA reports, including Emerging Space, The Evolving Landscape of 21st Century American Spaceflight, Public-Private Partnerships for Space Capability Development, and Economic Development of Low Earth Orbit. Alex, who is Canadian, received his undergraduate degree in economics from Queen's University, his master's degree in economics from the University of British Columbia, and is a Clarendon Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he obtained his doctorate on the long-run economic history of American space exploration. In today's episode, we'll talk about Alex's work at NASA as an economist and the book he published last year, The Long Space Age. Welcome, Alex, to the Space Q podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. When the general public thinks of NASA, they don't generally think about economics. You're a senior economic advisor in the office of the administrator at NASA headquarters in Washington. You've been in this position for just over two and a half years. Briefly describe what your work consists of. Well, so my work largely consists of providing uh, economic analysis and strategic advice to the senior leaders at NASA. Uh, that obviously includes the administrator, but also includes the leadership of the different mission directorates that comprise NASA, the Human Spaceflight uh, Directorate, uh, Human Exploration Operations, uh, Space Technology Mission Directorate, and the Science Mission Directorate. And I largely provide advice related to uh, economic issues at large, which of course uh, includes uh, the budget and the kind of politics around that, but but most specifically, uh, working with the private sector. Uh, what do we know about venture capital investment? What do we know about uh, the way in which various high net wealth individuals are engaging with the space sector? What do we know about uh, the motivations and ambitions of specific private sector companies? And so. I provide advice and kind of strategic analysis uh, on those topics. Now, uh, we have a new NASA administrator. Uh, it took a while for him to get confirmed, but he's now on the job. Um, and the administration has definitely shown that it's interested in uh, supporting the commercial sector. Have, have you had a chance to sit down with the new NASA administrator uh, and actually talk economics? Yeah, a few times, absolutely. Um, and, and you're right that this is certainly... Um, a great time to be interested in economic issues in the space sector. Um, there are a couple of specific issues that I find myself engaged with a lot. Uh, one, of course, is the return to the moon and and what's referred to as Space uh, Policy Directive 1 uh, from this administration that suggests we should be returning to the moon in an innovative manner that kind of partners in, 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 in new ways. Um, and then the other, of course, is uh, the kind of ongoing process of increasing commercial activity related to human spaceflight in lower Earth 
orbit. Uh, building off the commercial crew program, but also thinking about what's the future of human spaceflight in low Earth orbit going to look like as NASA increasingly moves out uh, beyond low Earth orbit, uh, around the moon, on the moon, and eventually to Mars. What's what are we going to be doing in low Earth orbit? What is the role of the private sector, and how do we think about structuring our uh, our activities there in such a way as to encourage private sector activity and competition while ensuring also that we're getting the work done related to research um, that we know we're going to continue to need in low Earth orbit? So those are the kind of two big issues that I tend to focus on a lot these days. All right, so that gives us a, a pretty good uh background on on what you do now let's go back a little bit and talk about what you've done leading up to this Um, your background includes a lot of work in what people would call emerging space including small satellites Uh, you set up nasa's uh, or were part of setting up nasa's emerging space office Uh, before we talk about that uh, uh, endeavor let's go back a little further you used to work at uh, nasa ames research center uh, with former senate director pete warden uh, some, would, some would say that NASA Ames was uh, leading the way and pushing for the adoption of uh, the benefits of small satellites, uh, you know, going back uh, oh, at least 10 years. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I think um, uh, the push towards small satellites, of course, has, has a number of different uh, kind of focal points. Obviously, Sirius Satellites over in England, so Martin Sweeting was, was one major kind of thrust. Um, of course, the CubeSat standard itself being developed um, by kind of Bob Twiggs and Jordi Puxari uh, in Stanford and, and Cal Poly. Um, you know, so, so Ames didn't exactly invent the area, and Pete certainly didn't kind of invent it, but he, he, he really did nucleate a, a group of researchers and um, engineers uh, in what was uh, NASA's small spacecraft division. And I worked in that division at the Mission Design Center. And that was really my first job uh, out of grad grad school and uh, mostly was doing kind of cost modeling research and helping with concept and proposal development, helping manage a couple of small projects. Uh, But there I was able to learn a lot from uh, my colleagues uh, who were in the division, uh, a few of which went off later to found the company Planet Labs. And it was from that NASA Ames team that Pete had brought together that we've seen a lot of the impetus in the government and especially in the private sector, um, because Skybox was also kind of uh, just down the road from Ames and was supported by uh, conversations with the engineering leadership at NASA Ames. So there really was a kind of catalytic effect that uh, Ames had on the small sec- small satellite sector um, at that time. And, and it certainly was a, was a way in which I started to get involved with thinking about uh, the role of small satellites in not just uh, technology, but also kind of uh, national capacity development as well. Yeah, so I, I suppose maybe I would put it that uh, Pete and, and uh, was was a, a champion for, for the small satellites at, at NASA and, and helped, uh, I suppose, popularize it in, uh, and push it forward. Is that, that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. So um, at your times at Ames, uh, what other area, emerging areas did, did you work on or was it just mainly the small satellite area? Well, I also served kind of as Pete's uh, informal you know, economic advisor back then, and you know my my PhD research had really focused on uh, essentially understanding the potential role that essentially high net wealth individuals, billionaires, um, have played historically in funding space exploration projects. And NASA Ames is almost within view, depending on the on the day, um, of the Lick Observatory. 
Space Milk Observatory is one of the most expensive space exploration projects of the 19th century. Uh, it was the first mountaintop astronomical observatory, and it was funded by the richest man in California in the 1870s, a guy named James Lick. And he'd spent 17.5% of his, uh, his entire estate on this single project. Um, and if the richest man in California uh, today, which would be either Larry Ellison or Larry Page, spent the same proportion of his wealth on a single space exploration project, uh, that would be about an eight to nine billion dollar uh, project, uh, which could, you know, more or less pay for a, a James Webb Space Telescope class mission. And so, you know, this was the kind of uh, this was the kind of focus of a lot of our conversations with Pete at the time, because, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Pete was uh, very much engaged with the Silicon Valley community at the time. Uh, you know, we would be you know regularly kind of having informal conversations with venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, and Pete was really doing a lot of work to connect uh, Google to Ames, uh, including Larry Page and and um, Sergey Brin, who of course helped promote the Google NRX Prize. Pete helped link that connection, so I kind of supported him on advice with how to you know how to think about the ways in which high net wealth individuals. Um, might be interested in space exploration projects, and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm happy to see that you know Pete, who is now left NASA, uh, is now working for a high net wealth individual, uh, Yuri Milner, uh, uh, as the chairman of the Breakthrough uh, Foundation, uh, helping support uh, the Breakthrough Starshot initiative, that really ambitious idea to uh, send a very small chipset um, to uh, incredibly high velocities and, and ultimately fly by Alpha Centauri. Okay, so when you look back to when you first started at NASA Ames and you look at the small satellite marketplace today, are you surprised at all at what you see? Uh, I, interesting question. I would say I'm not overly surprised. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm delighted to see that the uh, ambitions that, that some folks had 10 years ago have come to fruition. Um, I'm delighted to see that a, a, a relatively young group of engineers was able to build um, you know, the largest active constellation of satellites out there, um, out of CubeSats. Um, I would not say I would say that I'm, I'm surprised because I think at the time, you know, we were all surprised that people hadn't quite picked up that small satellites and miniaturization and the miniaturization of technology that you know is embodied in things like our our our, our smartphones today uh, had not really translated into the aerospace industry. And and now that that has, we're kind of seeing the results. Now, if I remember correctly, one of the initiatives that you led, and I'm not sure, I think this was when you actually uh, started working at the Emerging Space Office, was uh, getting a CubeSat launch from every state. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was um, our, our, our 50... Uh our uh, 50 states, 50 CubeSats in five years initiative, um, and we've only got 39 of the of the of the states uh, manifested with their own CubeSats. But uh, the idea really was to really spread um, the access to spaceflight technology and spaceflight hardware uh, across the entire country. And um, you know, it's been really incredible to see uh, you know some states really take this up. You know, Idaho uh, went from having kind of zero spacecraft projects to having three. And having them really focused at small technical colleges, right? Not just big kind of flagship state uh, universities. So um, it's been a really exciting thing to see just the access that is now uh, uh, available to people because of the reduced cost of, of both launch and uh, the components. 
Now, I'm not. I'm trying to remember. I, I was at NASA Ames and visited what was then known as the mansion, where uh, <laughs> a, a group of Steve, uh, a group of Pete's proteges lived. And I can't remember if we actually met there, but we did meet at a conference that I organized, which was the Small Sat Symposium here in Canada. And you actually talked about that idea of um, a small sat for every state, but also the idea of a small sat for every province and territory in Canada. And, um, and that was what, uh, oh, I'm losing track, that was what? 2016, I think. 2016, and, uh, and it's something, an idea that has uh, now come to fruition that the Canadian Space Agency is now doing the Canadian CubeSat project. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just so delighted to see um, the way in which the CSA has kind of taken that idea and run with it. And, and actually, they improved on it significantly because I had initially kind of suggested um, doing it in every province. And, and I'm delighted to see that they've been able to expand it to the territories as well. Um, you know, I, I really think that what's valuable about it is, is, as I mentioned, capacity development. The other thing that's really incredibly valuable about something like a CubeSat is that it increases the visibility of space activities and technology and science um, in, in, in places where there might not already be a high concentration of science technology investment. And we saw a, a little bit of, of this kind of effect uh, with Alberta SAT. Now, of course, there is actually a lot of science technology investment in, in Alberta, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, high-profile space activity. And there was a huge amount of media uh, that attended the launch of Alberta SAT. And I think what's really exciting is to think about the way in which the uh, landscape around space in Canada might change when you start having uh, the first CubeSat and I should just say the first spacecraft built and operated from Prince Edward Island, the first spacecraft built in, in Newfoundland, Labrador. Uh, I think that that can really change the way that, that people uh, access or the way that people uh, see the accessibility of spaceflight. And I know that because we've seen that here in the United States and, 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 and around the world in places like Lithuania and Ghana that have also started to do this stuff. So I think that that's going to be one of the really most exciting things to watch over the next couple of years as this uh, initiative plays out. And it's quite interesting because it like it's a national initiative. Yep. Um, there's a lot of uh, universities, colleges, even some high schools, uh, a lot of students involved in this. And the reality is, it's an $8 million project. <laughs> exactly. Not very expensive, and that's $8 million Canadian. So for our it U.S. Is. listeners, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, six point something uh, U.S. So not a very expensive project over many years, several years to, to get this project done. Okay, so uh, you were at NASA Ames. Uh, you then um, transitioned over, I suppose now, this is where it gets a little confusing, um, you actually went to NASA headquarters, but you were actually uh, working sort of through NASA JPL, and you went and created or co-created the NASA's uh, Emerging Space Office, right? More or less, yes. So I actually started working as the program executive for Emerging Space while I was still at NASA Ames. Ah, okay. And, um, you know, back then, which was around 2012, um, you know, <laughs> It's hard to remember, but um, you know, commercial space activities uh, weren't nearly as prominent six years ago as they are today. 
And so it was kind of considered fine to have the economic analysis and research unit uh, out uh, at NASA Ames, you know, really so they could be in touch with the Silicon Valley trends. Um, and there we found a number of reports and we produced a number of reports um, and, and listeners can kind of find them online um, just by searching for NASA Emerging Space. Um, there were a couple reports that uh, I think still kind of stand up. One was the uh, Emerging Space Report and another one was our public-private partnerships for space capability development. Uh, those were ones that we produced directly, but we also uh, really established the first ever research grants program in economics at NASA. And uh, that uh, that effort funded a, a number of reports that have kind of become industry standards, uh, one of which is the Startup Space Report, which uh, even though we no longer directly funded, has now thankfully been kind of um, updated every single year since. And, and that gives the community a, a sense of you know what's happened last year in the venture capital and private equity uh, communities. And uh, that's, that is, it, is, is it Bryce that's putting that out? Yeah. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that was kind of really the, the focus uh, when I was in in, uh, in California for the Emerging Space Office, which was really conducting economic analysis, kind of being a fair broker for these assessments, um, you know, providing uh, advice to the different offices at NASA headquarters, uh, you know, when they called. Um, but as uh, the industry uh, kind of heated up in terms of commercial activity, uh, ultimately there was a, a desire to kind of bring that function directly to headquarters. And so... Um, I ended up uh, kind of leaving NASA Ames and, and actually spending some time at JPL first, but then ultimately uh, went on a detail from a JPL to headquarters um, to kind of uh, take up that position again and uh, manage the Emerging Space Office from the Office of the Chief Technologist at headquarters. And that office still exists. And um, can you, what's some of its more recent focus? Um, so it's 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 still kind of mostly um, focused on kind of being a a, a, a friendly front door. Um, the actual research grants program has has been somewhat in limbo, although I am hopeful that it will uh, get restarted again. Um, it, uh, its most recent product is actually a very interesting one. It was one of the last ones that I worked on. Um, it's something called the Strategic Geography of the Solar System and Beyond. And it's a large infographic that looks at the different destinations in the solar system and, and also um, the nearest potentially um, habitable worlds or worlds that are in the Goldilocks zone at least out to about 25 light years and describes what the, let's say, social um, – and economic and political values of these destinations are. NASA tends to always see things in terms of engineering and science. Uh, but of course, we as people tend to engage with places for uh, social reasons or political reasons or economic reasons. And um, you know, one of my one of my favorite examples of of this um, are places like uh, Io and Venus. So you know, regardless of the scientific value of landing on the planet Io at some distant point in the future, we know that it has uh, volcanic eruptions that regularly happen that are tens of kilometers high. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we all want to see pictures of that. Uh, so regardless of scientific value, I think we as a civilization are going to want to be able to witness that in some way through our robotic emissaries. Uh, similarly, although um, you know Venus does not have the same type of human spaceflight support that places like uh, the Moon and Mars do, because the Moon and Mars are places that people can imagine developing uh, habitation and civilizations on, um, Venus is actually uh, the planet nearest to us in terms of the amount of time is required for getting a human spacecraft there and back. 
And because it is a, a planet that has a deep cultural history, it's one of the only planets that actually historical temples have been aligned to when you look at Mayan temples. Um, what that tells me is that for cultural reasons alone, eventually, once we have the capacity, at some point in the future, we will also conduct human orbital missions to Venus. Uh, we, can, we can leave aside the question of whether or not we're ever going to land humans on Venus, but, <laughs> but uh, orbiting Venus is, is essentially exactly the same technology that is needed for orbiting Mars. And so the goal of that uh, infographic was really to try to show people that there are different ways of looking about these things than just the science and the engineering, and just to hopefully spur some new thoughts of folks. Yeah. So that was the most recent Emerging Space Project. That infographic, I have to say, is uh, fantastic. Um, ha- is it available as a poster? Because I know if you want to print it out, you need to print it out as a good size to <laughs> take in all the detail. It is, and currently, you know, showing you uh, how uh, nitty-gritty things get kind of currently, uh, you know, uh, for these types of things. Uh, you can print it out, but you kind of got to email me, and uh, I'll put you in touch with the person who's got the large, you know, multi-hundred meg file for it. Um, so if there are any people who want to print it out, we're, we're, still, doing, uh, we're still doing requests. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's actually, it's really quite something to, to put up on a wall and for people to see it and to, to, to sort of get the different context uh, out of it as opposed to, like you say, just the scientific um all right so uh, that's uh you know a very brief history of alex (laughs) and his work at nasa um but one of the other things that you've done recently is publish a book and and that's what i want to spend uh, a good portion of the the rest of the podcast talking about because it's actually a, a fascinating book so last year uh the book came out it was published by yale press it's called the long space age uh, I have to say the book's pre- premise took me by surprise. It, it reminded me again, and something I tell people on occasion, knowing and understand history is critical to assessing current events. So in the book, you put forward the idea, which builds on your PhD thesis, uh, that what we're seeing with large private investments by the likes of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Paul Allen, etc., it's not new. Um, your first, your research first explores the observatories built in the U.S. between 1820 and 1940, uh, which shows that private investors contributed 96% of the cost, which I thought was quite something. And then you use the GDP ratio equivalently to, to show what the, how much money was spent in, in 2010 or 2012 dollars. And the 42 observatories that you list would have cost $8 billion dollars in 2012 uh, dollars, which is, you know, a, a staggering amount of money that was raised in that time to build these 42, uh, and of course, it's not $8 billion in those dollars, but in today's yep. dollars. So first off, how did this idea come to you? And is this a, the results uh, that you were expecting? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, it actually has a bit of a, of a Canadian connection because uh, the start really was when I was doing my master's degree at the University of British Columbia. Uh, my master's degree was in economics, and this was around 2004. And as you may remember, uh, this was exactly the time when the very first Spaceship One launch happened. And as an economist, seeing this uh, achievement uh, of what looked like a, a, you know, a privately funded spacecraft uh, going into space, it, it, it prompted just a very simple question in my mind, which was, well, how long have individuals been spending their own money to explore space? 
And my training was largely in economic history, which is very much kind of focused on thinking about the economic processes and the different kind of ways to adjust values from uh, historical times to current day times. Um, it kind of led me into looking at at, at earlier astronomical observatories and, and really kind of, I think probably a couple of weeks after, you know, the question came about, just went down to the library and, and started to dig through the, the journal for the history of astronomy and tried to find whatever economic estimates I could find for uh, their observatories. And once you kind of find the largest ones like Mount Wilson, uh, Lick Observatory, the Palomar Observatory, uh, you do the calculations and you find that, you know, these are in, in approximately billion dollar class. Um, uh, these are approximately billion dollar class observatories. And that was what really kind of uh, was the aha moment for me because once you're at that level, well, these are, these are significant projects, right? This is, this is evidence that private sector individuals have spent their own money on space exploration projects, but in a different way than people often talk about it. These were not commercial endeavors. These were private uh, philanthropic endeavors. They were done largely for legacy. Um, and I think that's a, a different uh, perspective on emerging space activities than I, I think we, we will often see in the media, where the emphasis is, is almost solely on the kind of commercial aspects. Uh, but in many respects, uh, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are, are not that different from people uh, like Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller. They've made their money in other places, and they see space as a, a locus for, uh, for legacy, for um, kind of leaving something um, behind to others. Of course, they also, different than Carnegie and Rockefeller, see this also now as a place to do business. And so what we're seeing now is, is, is not the same as what we saw in the 19th century with the philanthropic uh, funding of observatories, um, but there are some similarities and some important differences, and, and trying to understand those um, is really what a, a lot of kind of uh, strategic advice kind of, uh, I think, needs to hinge on uh, as we navigate this, this changing landscape. Um, and I'll just add one more thing, which is that it's not just that uh, astronomical observatories were funded by private individuals. Uh, Robert Goddard, the kind of uh, founder of liquid fuel rocketry in the United States, also received uh, the single largest share of his funding from the Guggenheim family because the Guggenheim family similarly had seen um, the advancement of flight in general uh, and with spaceflight as one portion of that as a place in which they wanted to establish their legacy. So it, it, it takes you really right up until um, that period in the, in, in the 40s and 50s when you start to see military investments dominate. Um, before that, private sector activity really was the locus in both um, early spaceflight technology and in astronomical observatories. So we'll get into some of those details in, in, a, in a couple minutes. But um, so are you saying um, the motivation, uh, and we're talking about the observatories to start with, was primarily um, legacy to start with? So it's, 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 a, it's an interesting set. So the very first observatories are actually um, college observatories um, that are funded often by the presidents of the college or they do the fundraising for them. And they're largely to kind of signal the arrival of a particular uh, college or university. Um, and, and good examples of these are, are you know, the Yale College Observatory um, that was one of the very first large refractors imported in the United States, um, Hopkins Observatory, uh, University of North Carolina Observatory. These were all in the, the early period in the, in the 1820s um, and 30s. And 
that then transitions to a period that I kind of think of as the civic observatories. And so after the universities start building these observatories, then you start to see cities focus on this. And, and the cities are kind of taken over by a sort of civic enthusiasm that says that, you know, the people of Philadelphia or Cincinnati or Boston are going to collectively raise the funds amongst their, uh, you know, kind of amongst their elite, essentially, um, to build world-class observatories. And, and the best example of this is the Cincinnati Observatory. And, and the story is a, an interesting one. A guy named Ormsby McKnight Mitchell comes to Cincinnati in the early 1840s, and he has these lantern slides, which are, are uh, transparent projections similar to you know, uh, PowerPoints or, or the old overhead projectors, if you remember them. Um, and he shows these images from the Polkovo Observatory in Russia uh, of nebula, uh, what we now know to be galaxies. And he gives an incredible series of lectures that inspires the people of Cincinnati and challenges them and says that uh, here in Republican America, uh, we need to show uh, the people, or I should say that um, because there are no czars or kings or queens in America, the people must become the patrons of science in the way that the monarchies have traditionally been the patrons of science in Europe. And that that means that, uh, you know, the people of, of America have to raise their own funds to fund these projects. And uh, he challenges the citizens of Cincinnati to build the world's largest observatory. <laughs> they don't quite get there, but they do actually manage to import the third largest refractor in the world from Germany and build a very impressive observatory that uh, stands to this day. Um, and what's interesting to me about that kind of moment is that this argument that's put forth um, by Ormsby McKnight Mitchell and kind of enshrined in the Cincinnati Astronomical Society um, is ultimately what has come to pass. It, you know, the United States has uh, arguably the most extensive space exploration program uh, in the world today and in the history of the world because the citizens of the country fund it directly. Um, and, and that's always an important counter to this idea that, uh, you know, the private sector uh, has a lot of momentum and a lot of, you know, uh, potential capital. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you add up these these observatories um, and you get, you know, eight to ten billion dollars in, in current GDP terms. That's equivalent to only one year of NASA's human spaceflight budget. Um, and so it's really still important to remember that that model that really dates back to the 1840s of the citizens funding space exploration directly still holds today and is why the American space institution is so strong. Now, when we get into the, the next part of the book, which talks about the spaceflight era, um, I've found it quite interesting that, uh, um, you know, a lot of people will think of Goddard uh, to start with, but... Goddard had to be inspired himself. And if I remember correctly, right. he was inspired by H.G. Wells. And, right. and um, even before then, you go into how um, the concept of spaceflight, going back to uh, Jules Verne, uh, who actually did a, a cost estimate. Can you, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this fascinating thing. Um, Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon is really um, just an incredible, incredible work. It's written in the 1860s. And what's so remarkable is how much of the basic uh, technical parameters of a mission to the moon he gets right. Uh, he essentially t tells the story of uh, a launch from Florida uh, with three people uh, that take three days to go to the moon. Uh, 
exactly the parameters that would ultimately prevail during the Apollo program. And what's interesting as well is that you know there are a few things that are quite different. Obviously, the technology he has a cannon rather than than rockets, um, but also the way in which it's funded, the way in which he describes uh, the the Columbiad, which is the very large cannon that they use to to launch the uh, people into into space around the moon, um, is funded by public subscription, and it essentially has a, a group of a private society, the Baltimore Gun Club. Uh, who, uh, having just finished the Civil War, decided they need to use their skills for something else now. Um, and they basically kind of announced to the world that they're going to launch something into space. And uh, he you know, envisions uh, a, a, a world in which people readily you know, supply their funds for that. Um, and I forget the number exactly, but you know he's he's only off in his in his estimate of the Apollo program by a couple orders of magnitude, which is quite impressive actually from the 19th century. So, um, uh, all of this uh, and the H.G. Wells led to some inspiration for Goddard, who started his efforts. Uh, and uh, if I remember correctly, I read that about fifty percent of his come of his funding came from from private sources. What stands out to you in the spaceflight uh, example during Goddard's time and leading up to nineteen fifty seven and, and Sputnik? Yeah, one of the ones, that, one of the things that surprised me the most really was that Goddard was actually uh, a celebrity at the time. Um, there's a story out there that, uh, you know, the New York Times kind of dismissed his idea and that, you know, there, here's this case of an inventor who was kind of laughed at but finally proven right. Um, the reality is quite different. The reality is that right after the First World War, when he had been funded by the military to do some of his work, um, he puts out his paper published by the Smithsonian on a method for reaching high altitudes and uh, gives some public uh, statements to the press uh, designed to uh, encourage interest, uh, suggesting that you could build a rocket that could hit the moon. And this is, again, you know, in, in, in 19, 1919 here or so. And uh, immediately the press uh, picks us up and says that we're just about to build a, a moon rocket. And there's this massive wave of, of public enthusiasm to the point where people are beginning to volunteer to go on Goddard's rockets to Mars. Um, there are some parallels to today, of course, in that, where people are volunteering also for rockets that don't quite yet exist. Um, and that, I think, is a really important uh, base for the future support that emerges in the 50s. Uh, because Goddard also um, helps to encourage some of the folks in the American Rocket Society who uh, then form in the late 20s. Um, he doesn't directly correspond with them because he's, he's fairly secretive about his research, but they nonetheless kind of seek him out and are inspired by him. And the American Rocket Society then starts to uh, cultivate their, um, their, their own passions for space flight. They began to work on some designs for kind of curtain cooling of engines and, and various different, uh, uh, different types of engines and pumps. And they ultimately become uh, the locus for really some of the space flight uh, community's elites to have independent channels um, into the political uh, branches of the government. When Werner von Braun starts to advocate for uh, the need for a national space program, for example, he does not do so from his relatively junior position within the Army, but rather he goes through as a private citizen uh, through the American Rocket Society. And so 
all this is to say that there's much more of a continuum in the development of the American spaceflight community uh, than you might otherwise uh, think from the kind of story that it all begins with Sputnik. Um, or that it all begins with the IGY, or it all begins with the, the Von Braun team coming over. Um, there's really a, a number of different uh, focal points, um, starting really uh, from a technological perspective with Goddard, um, and then proliferating into multiple different groups um, that, of course, ultimately end up coalescing uh, in a way with uh, the founding of NASA in 1958. All right. So uh, now let's uh, talk about 1957. Uh, onward to, let's say, the 90s or so. Um, so Sputnik gets launched. Um, the government is surprised, though it shouldn't have been surprised from what I've read. They had actually been told about 10 years earlier that <laughs> this type of event was going to happen. I'll let you talk about that in a second. Yep. Um, but uh, one of the things that you then expound on in the book is this idea of signaling. So just talked about that quick that's quick story on uh how sputnik was predicted 10 years earlier and then talk about how signaling and how that changed things in the late 50s into the 60s and 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 how it uh it, it's changed since then yeah i'm glad you picked up on 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 the early uh, the early warning there because it's one of my favorite little stories um the very first report produced by uh the research group rand was actually entitled um, A World Circling Spaceship, and it was in 1947, and they had been tasked with thinking about some of these you know, future technologies, and they essentially correctly predicted that not only would a small spacecraft launched on, on the emerging launch vehicles of the time be possible, but that its principal effect would be psychological. Uh, they, they clearly laid out uh, kind of the case for the consternation that would happen in, in, amongst the American public if it was suddenly discovered uh, that another nation had launched something t into space and they had not. Um, so exactly 10 years before Sputnik, uh, some of the research analysts uh, looking at the problem kind of got it right. And I like to point at that one as an example that sometimes, uh, you know, the research analysts uh, do actually uh, know something far in advance of, uh, of other folks. Um, so what they were alluding to was essentially what I would call kind of the signaling value of spaceflight. And signaling is a concept in economics and in biology, which essentially says that uh, costly action can credibly transmit information in a situation of uh, asymmetric information. And to break that down a little bit, um, you can either think of either a peacock's tail or a, a Lamborghini. Right. A peacock's tail is, is a good signal of, of the health of uh, the peacock uh, because it's actually superfluous. Um, it, doesn't, uh, it isn't required for you know, survival. Um, it just kind of shows off how uh, it is actually so fit that um, it can basically waste a bunch of its energy in growing this uh, impressive tail. Um, in, in another way, if you think about a Lamborghini, if you see someone driving a Lamborghini, you might not know a lot about uh, that person, but you know at least you know, uh, something, you know, either that they're quite wealthy themselves, um, they're good at stealing things, or they uh, have a very wealthy friend. And you know that because access to a Lamborghini is quite costly. So think about this in the context of space. Um, if you're in 1957 uh, and you're, say, in Ghana or Thailand, uh, this is before the jet age. 
Um, you're unlikely to have visited the Soviet Union or the United States. Um, most of the information that you're getting is from newspapers or radio, which are relatively easily propagandized. Um, and so you, you, you don't necessarily know a lot about the conditions in those countries. But if you can verify uh, through a simple radio signal that you know one country has sent something into space and the other has not, you know that it is very difficult to send something to orbit the Earth. And therefore, you know that this country has the technological capacity um, that uh, is able to do that and, and, and therefore a very, very high level of, of economic capacity, technical capacity, and organizational capacity. Therefore, you know something meaningful about the capabilities of that country. And so this is why um, the space race uh, happened from a geopolitical perspective because there was this competition of, of who really the, the leader of the world was at the time, and space served as as one of the best indexes, or I should at least say one of the simplest indexes that people could use to measure uh, which country uh, had the greatest capacities, um, and that and that function really existed for for decades. Um, and and space continues to have uh, the the function of signaling, uh, even if not necessarily that it's about signaling supremacy. An example of that, of course, is the International Space Station. Uh, the International Space Station is not a, a signal of supremacy. It's actually a, a credible signal of the willingness of the countries of the world to work together um, in general and in space in specific, because working together on the International Space Station is quite costly. And, and so that, that general function of signaling, I think, still explains a lot of the major space policy decisions that we see. And as we discussed earlier, actually is a kind of framework for thinking about um, the, the, the political value of spaceflight that extends all the way down to, uh, to smaller entities. As we discussed in terms of you know, states having their own spacecraft or province having, provinces having their own spacecraft, those too are signals of the capacity of those particular political units. Um, and so this, this, this framework of signaling combined with uh, a framework that I kind of think of as intrinsic interest, which is the intrinsic passions of people like Robert Goddard or, or for that matter, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, um, when you combine those two, you kind of have the different supply and demand sides of the equation. And it's a very simple way of thinking about it, but I, I think it helps, um, it helps uh, make clear some of the real uh, motivations that, that drive major space developments. Now, in uh, I suppose the 90s, and but we'll, we'll, we won't go into that in, in any great detail, but uh, let's go back to 2004. Uh, since 2004, um, you detail how 2.4 million billion, I should say, uh, has come from the private uh, sector for space flight uh, development. And uh, as you've said, and uh, which is obviously lost on, on a lot of people um, who think that this is, you know, a new thing. It actually isn't a new thing, as your book uh, surmises. Um, is this is are we seeing a transition back to greater investment by the private sector into space? Or is this just a, a blip like uh, a period uh, of investment? That's a that's a great question, and you know, if an economist predicts the future for you, you shouldn't believe them. Uh, 
<laughs> but um, you know what's what's interesting is you know again just looking historically, we've seen the last three years um, consistently high levels of venture capital investment, not just in in, in human spaceflight, but in space activities more generally. Um, the last three years, we've each seen about two billion dollars of of private sector investment in one form or another in um, in, in in space companies and new space companies. Um, at, prior to the last three years, you were you were lucky to get in the low hundreds of millions. Um, so we're definitely in, in a really particular um, moment with regard to uh, investor enthusiasm for spaceflight. Earlier this year, um, there were major reports from Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and Merrill Lynch that uh, projected uh, a global space economy of a trillion dollars um, by the 2040s. Uh, the space economy is currently uh, roughly measured at around kind of $350 billion or so. So it's an area that people continue to see growth, or I should say project growth, and are seeing growth uh, in recent years. Um, I also think that you know, when you look at the individuals who are investing in spaceflight, uh, many of them are quite young. Uh, they're in their 40s or people like Jeff Bezos and, and Musk or uh, early 50s. So I think uh, these are folks who have this intrinsic motivation. And so a provider that they have their own capital, they will continue to spend some of it on space activities. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I, I don't see the signals to suggest that the, the private sector expenditures are going to overtake the government expenditures for human spaceflight anytime soon. Right. Um, the the investments for the private sector activities often tend to be fairly consistent or, or even lumpy at that matter. So, taking a broad look at this now, yep. 1820s to 1940s, the observatories example, we saw that 96% the data shows was came from private sources. Yep. Then when spaceflight era started and Goddard going into the early 50s, we saw that it was about 50% that it was private. Then signaling really came into focus with respect to space exploration uh, in the 60s, and we see governments uh, overtaking the private sector in investment, so much so that we think that when we see the investments coming back in, in, in big time in the early 2000s, that it's actually a new thing, not actually remembering what history has actually shown us in the past. So with respect to, and I suppose this is a different way of asking the same question from the last one, but maybe a little bit different. With respect to the ratio of investments coming from private versus government, do you have enough history to show where it's going to go going forward or we're just don't know yeah that's that's a great question i really like how you laid that out there too in terms of the ratios um so once again with all the caveats of prediction said um one thing that is highly correlated with private sector investment being very high in space activities is also essentially very high wealth inequality and wealth concentration at the top so the late 19th century and early 20th century were also periods of incredible uh, wealth concentration um, at the very top of, of, of the economy. Um, one of the things that could very easily change that, for example, would be some sort of large-scale economic disruption. Um, in a case where you had large-scale economic disruption, uh, you would potentially have a lot less uh, high net wealth individuals with uh, spare capital um, to spend on space activities. Uh, so if you're if you're a believer that um, 
you know the the good times can't keep going on forever then then there may be a period of time where uh the the ratio ends up uh increasing in terms of uh government expenditure again that said the current trends um are showing uh greater uh private sector share um than kind of usually the previous year and that's been true for the last few years so we're currently on a trend where you're seeing more and more private sector investment um over the next few years where that goes over the next uh, couple decades though as larger macroeconomic phenomena play out is i still think an open question and it is to point out still a small percentage of what's actually being spent uh certainly in in human spaceflight and space exploration although of yeah. course you know as as you know kind of the commercial communication satellite market is still the majority of all space activity True. Um, you know, uh, DirecTV and just using ComSats is still over $200 billion of the overall estimated 250. But uh, that, of course, is also actually quite a separate um, industry, really, in, yeah. in many respects. All right. I have uh, just two more questions. Um, any last thoughts on the book you want to share that I, I know I missed a lot. There's so much in there. But any anything that really stands out that I missed? Um. You know, I think one of the one of the stories that I, th I think is is an interesting one uh, is you know the story of John Quincy Adams. Um, so, kind of going back to the very very beginning of it all, um, what really surprised me was that you have uh, you know the sixth president of the United States uh, essentially advocating in his very first inaugural address to Congress for a federal observatory. And he ended up becoming a, a real spokesperson for kind of space exploration more broadly. Um, and, you know, his, his, uh, his speeches and his writing on the subject end up actually inspiring this uh, observatory movement uh, that leads to the very first observatories there in the 1830s and, and 1840s. Um, and what's also so amazing about... Uh, his advocacy is, of course, that it fails completely in Congress. Congress hates the idea of a federal observatory because it's seen as impinging on states' rights in education areas. And, you know, these relatively recently United States were not entirely sure they wanted a strong federal signal, like a federal university or a federal observatory. Um, and so they, they turned down his suggestion while he's president. Uh, but he's the only president to actually come back and serve in the House of Representatives after having been president uh, because he argued that uh, being a direct representative of the people was a higher honor than just being an executive. And when he's in the House of Representatives in the 1840s, um, he ends up serving as the chair of the commission on what to do with the bequest of James Smithson. Uh, James Smithson was a wealthy chemist in England who left all of his money to the United States for uh, the diffusion of knowledge. And essentially, John Quincy Adams argues that uh, that bequest, the Smithson bequest, should be used um, to fund new projects uh, of diffusion of knowledge in perpetuity. That it should become uh, essentially a trust uh, and that they should use the interest on, on that to uh, fund these projects. The first one that he suggested, of course, was an observatory. Uh, this was once again rejected uh, by Congress, but the general idea that he'd suggested was in fact adopted and thus was founded the Smithsonian. And so uh, it is with, you know, kind of no small amount of pleasure that I, you know, when I come to NASA headquarters, I look at, uh, you know, the building often on my walk um, that uh, houses the National Air and Space Museum, which houses, you know, the Apollo 11 command module and many of the great artifacts of spaceflight history. 
and to recognize that that is the result of a space flight community, or I should say at least a space exploration community uh, that dates back uh, over 150 years is something that's really important, I think, for all of us to recognize. Uh, we tend to think of spaceflight as a relatively new phenomenon. We tend to think of space exploration as having a, a relatively young community. But you know, all of us who contribute to space exploration are part of a multi-generational intellectual community um, that is still evolving and will continue to evolve. And I think the more we understand the kind of diversity and complexity um, of what we have managed to achieve in the past, I think it will kind of open up some of our eyes as to the, the different options that we have for the future, because just to, to bring that kind of note full circle, um, that idea of a single bequest from a wealthy individual that is used in perpetuity for over 150 years to fund new projects is exactly the kind of uh, financial instrument that ultimately might be really important for encouraging space development down the road. Yes, and the Smithsonian is an incredible institution, and whenever I get a chance to go to Washington, it's always part of my trip. All right, so my last question has nothing to do with what we talked about. Um, <laughs> basically, what books are you reading now that you like or would recommend, uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, or gotcha. any other books that you would recommend? <laughs> that, is a, that is a great question. Um, you know, one of the ones I'm reading right now is actually um, the book 1493, which is uh, really a kind of about the, uh, col the, the Columbian exchange, the, the exchange of, of biological uh, material that results from uh, Columbus's voyages and, and how that really shapes our modern world today. Uh, it's a really fascinating um, it's really fascinating to look. Actually, my, my father, who still lives in Ottawa, recommended it to me, and uh, I'm enjoying listening to it on podcasts on my walk to work. Um, uh, a couple of other books, though, that I read recently that I would really recommend um, for those of you in the kind of political world, um, it's a book called The Gatekeepers, which is a really short history of every White House chief of staff and the challenge they dealt with, but also kind of the model uh, for uh, being a chief of staff and how that has changed over time. Um, uh, that was a great book. Um, another really good one was called The Swerve, uh, which was really kind of about uh, the rediscovery of Epicurean philosophy um, and uh, and kind of, you know, how that influenced the, 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 the medieval era. Um, and then, of course, one that I have to kind of recommend for for everybody really is uh, The Three-Body Problem, which uh, is an amazing story. It's kind of the breakout science fiction story uh, from China. And uh, it's kind of three parts. Uh, it's really it's really a spaceflight epic uh, from China. Uh, but uh, one of the most interesting things about it recently is that Amazon just bought the rights to it. And we're not talking about the production value here; just talking about the rights. And just for the rights, they paid one billion dollars. So yeah, we, we actually be... talked about that in one of my earlier podcasts. I can't remember which one it was, but that, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, that, so absolutely, you're, it's, uh, yeah, it's you're ahead of, you're ahead of me there. Then, but it's a, it's a really <laughs> incredible series. All right. So, uh, Alex, uh, thank you for being on the Space Cube podcast. I, I hope we can get you on the show uh, again in the future. I uh, would be delighted to, Mark. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. It's been a pleasure to chat. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spacecube. We really appreciate feedback, 
And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.